Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Andy J, Cyril O, Cindy W, Michael C, Byron A, Nick Z, Adam B, and Paul M. Due to time limitations, we may not be able to cover all questions. Natural resource businessman Ross Beatty is on the show today. Russ needs no introduction. However, we would say that he wears many hats concerning involvement with the mining business, environmental stewardship, the energy sector, and charitable foundation efforts focused on wildlife and environment conservation. Now, Ross has reluctantly agreed to spend some extra time with us for a two-part uh, badgering of his positions and views covering an extensive range of matters important to Ross and also for our audience. Mr. Beatty, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Andrew. Russ, well, let's get into it and forego the usual formalities. Based on time spent, where do you call home? Why do you like it there? And also, what other places around the world do you like to spend time throughout the year? Well, I, as you will find uh, in this uh, discussion, am a somewhat complicated individual. Uh, basically, I love life and all aspects of it. Um, and I kind of love traveling and being everywhere but here, but mostly I like being here. <laughs> and so uh, here is where I am at this moment, which is a, a house on a small island near Vancouver called Bowen Island. It's a house that is surrounded by the ocean. It's right on the water. And I'm looking out right now and looking out, looking for whales and, and otters and porpoises and things. I mean, it's just a beautiful place. There's a rainforest behind me. Uh, it's a place that I just adore living. It's my favorite place on earth for sure. Uh, I have a big garden here. I try to grow all, my wife and I try to grow all the food that we need to eat, except I fish a lot and I enjoy the ocean's bounty. And uh, so we, we really have a, an idyllic existence here. I haven't said that. I have, for some reason, a very peripatetic instinct in me. I love to move around. It almost matters not how that movement happens, be it in a plane, a, a car, a kayak, a canoe, or a bicycle, motorcycle, you name it. I, I just have this urge to move. So I love to travel. I love to go to different places. And in fact, I've just come off on, on Friday night. I just came off a, a trip to Latin America where I was in eight countries in 11 days. And in, in fact, in each country, I continued to travel. I went to uh, different mines or different renewable energy projects that I'm involved with. And uh, it was just one hectic 11-day period, but, but incredibly productive and, and a ton of fun and seeing a lot of friends and a lot of business contacts. So, you know, my, my problem, if you want to call it a problem, is just I, I love doing everything. And it sometimes gets, you know, th one thing gets in the way of another. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like quite an adventure. And of course, uh, from your descriptive of where you live, it sounds like you, you took some time and effort to, to set forth where you wanted to live and, and the particular property that you selected. So sounds very good. For Russ, sure. can you highlight for us your family at home and the importance they have played in your life direction? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I, I'm just one of the luckiest guys. I know I, I think luck, uh, you'll find, I, I use that word a lot because, uh, I, I recognize that not, not all of this comes because you're you're any smarter than the next guy or any any more uh, astute. It, it, it really is luck, and and I have been so lucky in where I was born, which is Vancouver. 
how I grew up, which is in a kind of middle class family. My father died when I was 21. I lost a sister when I was 19. But I, I basically have two brothers who are great, very warm and friendly, and, and they all live in Vancouver with their kids. And, and I have a wife I, I, I met in the, in the early 70s. I married in 1980. So it's 39 years now of, of, of marriage, and uh, we've had five kids. They're all healthy. They're all wonderful and, you know, basically grown up now, 25 to 35 years old. They've got kids now, so we have four grandchildren. I just couldn't imagine a, a, a nicer experience for me uh, in terms of my family. And we see each other a lot. We're, you know, but, but a lot of that is, is sure, it's, it's the good nurturing and so on of my, of my wife with the kids. And, and I've spent some time, you know, a fair bit of time with them. And we've, we've raised them well, and they've had a good education and so on. But, but again, you know, we've been lucky in that they've, they're all healthy and and, and normal kind of kids. And I have no aspirations for them to follow me in business, particularly. I just want them to be healthy and happy. And they, they pretty much are. So, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's my personal world. And it's a, it's a very lucky and a very, a very, a very satisfactory one. Well, it sounds like a fantastic model, Ross, and, and congratulations on all that time and all those accomplishments. I think it's uh, certainly notable in this day and age. Thank you. Well, Ross, what are people missing when you can be a person of success in business like the mining business, often dismissed as a destructive practice to the environment, you take a balanced approach in support of proper mineral extraction while being a sensible supporter of natural resource conservation. Why is it that people come down on either side but can't come down in a reasonable middle ground? Well, I think a lot of people can and a lot of people do. Uh, you do see uh, a small minority who tend to target mining and uh, are very critical of it. But most people recognize that they need minerals for their everyday life. They use them all around them. And, and, you know, you have to have some kind of extractive industry in order to have a normal industrial society, which we live in. Uh, the real fanatics, uh, they're just simply extraordinarily hypocritical, just to, to use one phrase. Uh, perhaps they're extremely naive. They don't think about how many metals that they use in everyday life from their cell phone to their camera to their to their card the bicycle the wind turbines you know you name it you need metals and, and then they also don't think of the devastating impact on nature that normal living of any person on earth has where you live how you live how you transport yourself you know there's i mean if you take every single mine in 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 the united states and put the land together that, that those mines occupy, it's less land than Walmart parking lots across America. But people never think of Walmart parking lots, just to use an example, as being destructive of nature. But they are, they're permanent. They're never reclaimed. Mines finish eventually, they're all non-renewable, all, all mines eventually deplete and are then reclaimed. And modern reclamation is quite incredible. You can reclaim a lot of mines in such a good way that you hardly know they're there. I'm talking particularly about underground mines and you could say smaller uh, normal mines. A lot of mines today can be extraordinarily well reclaimed so, so people barely even know they, they were once mines. And I can give you examples in California, all through the United States and Canada. Uh, old mines weren't. You know, we're living the legacy of a very rapacious industry that, that lasted a long time, 150 years or so, until environmental laws were put in place to enforce reclamation, enforce waste discharge that was, that was correct or no waste discharge at all to the air or the land or the water. But, you know, modern mining is a very different thing than it used to be. And, uh, and you just can't have those abuses today. You know, these, these, these critics tend not to look at themselves in the mirror and say, 
what is the real root problem here? And the root problem is not mining per se, mining or oil and gas extraction, any of those things, or the brawl of, of subdivisions, or the use of huge areas of, of the earth for agriculture, uh, livestock growing, monoculture. Those are all problems. They're all serious, serious, long-term, unsustainable ways of human existence. The problem is that we're consuming too much. We're not you know, living the right way. We're not eating the right things. So there's a lot of ways to resolve these things, short of saying every mine has to close. Mines, and, and everything for that matter, just responds to demand. If you don't have demand, you're not going to need those activities. The real problem is with today, to me at least, I'm not a champion of, of mining. I, I happen to live in the industry and I've done well in the industry. It's, it's an industry that we have in the world we're going to have for a long time until people don't need any metals of any kind or we can do a, a circular economy. But the real problem is there's too much per capita consumption. We're, we're consuming way beyond our means, way beyond the Earth's ability to sustain itself. And the simple solution is to reduce consumption. This includes metal consumption. It includes energy consumption across the board. If you reduce demand, you're not going to need as many mines as we have and as many mines as we'll be building in the future. And you'll be able to spread out the extraction of Earth's resources over a much, much longer time period, which is a more sustainable endpoint. And that's to me, that's really what I'm, I advocate all the time is we've just got to change our, our, our lifestyles and we've got to change our global ecological footprint because what we have now, we're consuming too many resources and we're going to end up in a real crisis in the future. And I don't like crises. I'd like my kids and their kids and their kids to be able to live in a much more sustainable fashion where they're using fewer resources per person and they're spreading out the use of these earth resources, which are finite to a much, much longer period. And with that will be less use of the, of the earth and it will be a more environmentally sustainable uh, situation. And actually, ultimately, it'll be more socially sustainable as well. Well, I certainly agree with your position, Ross. I, I think it makes makes a lot of sense, and I think people need to consider these issues now rather than later. I want to move on to uh, global warming, or I guess they frequently call it now, uh, they use the term climate change. Give us your view from a geologist context of time perspective, and then what is your general view on the matter, and what reasonable actions should be taken? Well, Andrew, these, these are all big questions, and as you've already noted, I can kind of go on at length on these. These are, I rant about this stuff because it's very meaningful to me. And, uh, and so I, I might have longer answers than you might prefer, but I'll try to keep this one short. Global warming and climate change, they're synonymous. The, the, the facts are established. I mean, any science, any scientist worth the salt will agree. Any climatologist worth the salt will agree. There, there's a vast preponderance of, of evidence and, and global science that says there is this warming and it's due to global warming from humans. Uh, not entirely, but in large part. And if you just think, forget about the science. Maybe, maybe some of your listeners, just forget about you know, what everybody's telling you and just try to think intuitively for just a moment. The, the Earth has been around for about 4.6 billion years. Now, carbon in Earth systems didn't really get going. I mean, repositories of carbon in the Earth, in the surface, of, surface layers of the Earth, didn't really get going until maybe 600 million years ago, give or take, when there was a lot of plankton, a lot of, of things in the ocean. And then you started having animals uh, evolving. So say, let's just say 600 million years. But the real, in terms of, uh, you know, where oil and gas come from is, are, 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 are largely from little microscopic bugs that die in, in the ocean and go to the bottom and then form in layers and then ultimately become oil. Well, coal uh, comes from plant material. 
and and for some reason, in about 350 million years ago, uh, in a in an era all over the world, there was a lot of oxygen, created a huge amount of plant life, and you had massive coal deposits, huge, huge, incredibly thick coal deposits, and they're mining them today in Pennsylvania, and and all over Europe and all over the world. So basically, we've we've had 600 million years of accumulation of carbon in the Earth's crust. This started being extracted around 19, about 1800, and uh, when the Industrial Revolution happened, it started coming out of the earth by humans and being burnt. Uh, coal fueled the Industrial Revolution. Oil has fueled the, the last hundred years, probably of Earth, uh, Earth's uh, economic growth. And we're now, you know, we're now burning about three billion tons of coal per year in the world, and at least, and we're burning about 19 billion barrels of oil per day. I mean, this is just, these are just staggering quantities. So in the space of about 100, 150 years, maybe 200 years, give or take, and maybe we've got enough for another 100 years, we're burning the Earth's repository of 600 million years of accumulated carbon. Just think what that's doing to the air. Like, again, try to forget about the science. And just think for yourself, when you burn this huge amount of accumulated carbon that's accumulated for hundreds of millions of years, you burn it in just a few hundred years. It's going into the air. Of course it's having an impact. I mean, it just has to. The scientists tell it, tell us it does. Thinking just like that, you, you, it, it absolutely has to. So it is. And, you know, certain gases are worse than others. Methane is worse than, worse than carbon dioxide. But fundamentally, it's, it's warming the air uh, as, as a greenhouse gas. And then as the air warms, the ocean warms. As the ocean warms, as we have more carbon, in the, carbon CO2 in the atmosphere, it gets into the ocean, it acidifies the ocean. And it's a kind of a horrible feedback loop that just sort of gets progressively worse and worse. And there's all kinds of very fundamental problems for humans in all of this and for other animals that rely on a kind of a status quo. The climate changes so quickly that it's hard for us to adapt to it. We get severe weather. We have all manner of dislocations of the, the biological world. And it's going to cause tremendous stress on humans. It's, it's not just the hurricanes and, and things like that, but it's, it's, it's actually the food web that we rely on. Uh, the clean air, the clean water, the, the clean uh, soil, and the whole of the basis for human existence is being threatened now. So it's a very serious problem. It's an extremely serious problem. It's resolvable through effort. And to the extent that we can, we can really work on the solution, we will have a result. We'll have a result that for future generations will be better. Unfortunately, we've gone to the point that we've ignored the problem as a globe for many decades since we knew it was going to be a problem. And so we're now getting into more of a crisis. It's a very serious problem today, and it's going to be more serious. And luckily, a lot of people are starting to really get serious about it. The Europeans are way ahead of the North Americans. North Americans tend to be way ahead of the sort of South Americans. And, uh, and Asians are now kind of getting on stream in different places in different ways. Certainly, China's on board in a big way. They're, they're leading the world in a lot of green technologies that are trying to reduce carbon emissions. At the same time, they're a tremendous problem themselves in, in terms of the amount of coal that they burn, where their own industrial society has got them. Luckily, it is, it is being recognized, though, as a global problem, and there are solutions. And there's a lot of work being done on different forms of transportation, of course, electrical vehicles versus internal combustion vehicles different ways of making electricity, renewable energy versus the gas and coal, fired power, for example, uh, different ways of living and more density, which uses a lot less CO2 per, per, per person. I mean, there's all sorts of things. And then there's some very clever people doing some work on trying to scrub CO2 out of the atmosphere and make, uh, make transportation fuels out of it and, and, and so on. There's some very cool uh, innovations happening that I, I think have some promise to actually have a an engineered solution to uh, CO2 to actually pull it out of the air. 
So there's a lot happening right now. A lot of people are on the page. You've got a bunch of dinosaurs who just refuse to change or who are so ignorant that, that they, they refuse to listen and, and read the science. That's just the way the world is. You just have to ignore those kind of people. Unfortunately, the U.S. has, has one ruling it right now and at the head of, uh, head of government who, who doesn't seem to understand science or a heck of a lot else for that matter. Um, but uh, th- that's okay. That'll, that'll, uh, that'll, you know, that'll pass in due course. And uh, an awful lot of people in the U.S. are aware of things. They're taking action. And, uh, of course, it is still the world's greatest, most innovative, most dynamic country where, you know, you're going to see some tremendous benefits that will help serve the world to address this problem. So there's a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. There's a lot of good and a little bit of bad there, but that's kind of the way of the world right now. I hope that answered your question in, in part. No, absolutely. And I appreciate the comments and insights there, Ross. And, and I, I certainly uh, align with a lot of what you're saying. And I think if you just apply some simple logic, like you said, uh, look, there's billions of people on this earth now. Medical technology and advancements in our, our way of living has improved that demographic. And obviously, there's more consumption. And as a result of that, we also have abundance of, it, of consumption as well, which is also a problem, which you uh, alluded to. And I want to talk to that because I think it fits into this issue of, of climate change. Global consumption and the perceived need for economic growth. Can you just elaborate a little bit more, Ross, on what you mean here? What is your position with things like abundance versus just being sustainable? Right. It's a complicated um, subject. The nature of growth and the nature of economic development globally. Let's have on one side the, the, the reality that, you know, we've had 180 years of kind of a growth environment. And it's really got going after the Second World War. So really since 1950, approximately, we've had this sort of 4% global growth, 4.5% growth. And, it, and, and it's, it's been a kind of an exponential thing. So it, it, you know, it accumulates all the time. And it's actually worked pretty well because it's made people live better and longer and healthier and a lot more socially cohesive. We haven't had a war since 1945, a global war. I mean, it's, it's worked pretty well. We've got a, a world where people live a lot better, uh, with a lot fewer people in poverty. So what's wrong with that picture, you might say? Well, the answer is that it's just simply not sustainable. In the same way that, uh, you know, a wine or a, a bunch of grapes in a vat, you know, they rely on, on, on bacteria to, to break down the sugar, turn it into alcohol. And when the sugar's all gone, the, the bacteria all die. If you have a lot of people on an island, uh, like Easter Island, for example, they just grow and grow and grow, and all of a sudden they run out of resources, and they all die. They just die off, and, and that's exactly what happened there. So the Earth is kind of like that. It's like an island. It's it's a finite thing. It's got finite resources, finite number of acres of uh, of habitable land, and we've actually used up more than we can really logically keep growing off of in order to. Yeah, and there's there's all kinds of negative consequences of where we've got to today, 2019. All sorts of negative consequences. There's there's actually, quite frankly, probably too many people in the world too. So population's a problem. Luckily, population is sort of looking after itself because as women have more freedom, they tend to have fewer kids. There's less fertility. And actually, I, I'm kind of hopeful that the Earth's population will kind of peak out at around 9 billion, maybe 10 billion, and then perhaps, you know, drop down to a to a more sustainable level. So let's not particularly talk about population here because I think it's kind of going to look after itself. A few places are exceptions, which are real disasters. But um, by and large, we're probably going to be okay on population. The other thing to hit is consumption patterns. You know, as I said earlier, I think we're consuming more than we can sustainably consume. And if we don't solve this problem by design, 
we're going to have it happen by disaster. We're going to have all kinds of disasters where you have people running out of resources. You have a lot of uh, economic refugees happening, a lot of turmoil, a lot of just a lot of chaos and potentially some wars, because this is often how wars actually start is they start when you have tremendous inequality between nations. So it's very hard. <laughs> you can't really organize this. You just have to sort of explain it enough to enough people that they actually take personal action. And to some degree, governments take action too. But I'm always very optimistic. I'm an optimistic person. And I do think we cannot condemn the poorer world to a no growth world. They have to grow. They have to you know, they have to make their condition better. And so that's all fine and well. I think the place to concentrate on is the richer countries, you know, say Japan, uh, growingly China, uh, certainly North America, uh, some of Latin America, uh, all of Europe. We actually just have to think of ways to live better, not necessarily bigger, and try to moderate our consumption because most of the world's consumption actually occurs in these rich countries. So to the extent we can moderate our, our needs, change our lifestyles so that we use less land, use less resources, that is a more sustainable result. I'm trying to do that personally. I'm trying to get my kids to do it. I, I try to, you know, I try to encourage other people to do it with, with some of the philanthropy we're doing. And I think that, you know, long term, and that's what I'm always thinking about. I'm thinking about multiple generations way out in the future, not about next week or next month, but hundreds of years from now. So that my children and their children, and their children can, can live in the world where they're, they're going to be able, they're going to be free of conflict and free of really serious problems. Climate change is a big problem. We've got to tackle that. We've also got to attack the war on biodiversity. We're losing species like you wouldn't believe. It's a, it's a whole new extinction era right now caused by humans. We've just got to reverse that. And how you do that is you, you have more land that's in reserves, more land for nature, and less land just for people with you know pavement and concrete and, and, and buildings on them and mass agriculture. We've got to remember that nature exists too, that we have to have healthy nature to have healthy people. We rely on clean air, clean water, clean soil, and clean oceans to exist. Let's look after them for heaven's sake if we want to have our kids living in a, in a healthy world. So that's kind of why I'm focused on protection of the environment, protection of biodiversity, because I just think it's fundamental to a healthy society for my kids and their kids. Ross, and I want to follow on with uh, what could potentially be a, a, a consequence of abundance. So your efforts in truly disadvantaged societies means opportunities for these folks to make a decision about self-determination. Has abundance in fortunate nations paved the way for people to think that they are owed something by default versus those who know that you should always produce more than you consume? I don't actually know the answer to that, Andrew. You can certainly observe some people in poor countries who do, you know, have some kind of chip on their shoulder who say the rich, oh, what's this and oh, what's that? And, and there's a lot of those kind of people in world organizations like the UN who espouse that kind of stuff. I don't personally have, you know, put much uh, stock in that. I think a lot of the problems of poor countries are, uh, are, are rather more profound than, than, than simply uh, exploitation by richer countries. That's maybe a part of it, but it's, it's more serious than that. And I think solutions are there, and, and I think there are a lot of the more progressive countries are, are applying those solutions, and they're actually improving their condition rather significantly. So it's, it's deeper than that. It's, it's, how, people, it's how, you know, how people are governed. It's their type of law system. It's, you know, Africa is particularly problematic because it has the tribal you know, history. I would say the Arab, Arab countries and Muslim countries in, in large part haven't been very successful, probably because of how they're governed and how they're traditionally governed. 
And that is, hasn't worked too well in a society which is full of rapid change and innovation and creativity. That's where the U.S. has is, is just been so strong and so powerful and so successful. So I'm kind of optimistic that ultimately, you know, the, the example of, of, of European nations and, and North American nations will apply in other countries. Ultimately, certainly free markets are the only way to go as far as, you know, economic success is concerned. I mean, we've done so many experiments with socialism and communism and they've all been shown to be failures. So there is a, a clear result from experience of economic systems that work. And, and they're being applied in large part in, in most of the world today. And that will have results. Certainly look at China. That's, that's a classic case where free markets, free markets have done more to bring that country up in terms of quality of, of life for the average person than, than anything else, certainly more than communism. But um, really, I, I look at my own backyard. And I'm trying to do something here that, 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 will, that will help help my world that I can actually have some influence on. I don't really have much influence on what's going on in India or Bangladesh or, or much of Africa, but I certainly can, can do my little bit here in my own backyard. Yeah, certainly. And think that uh, you have some interesting things you point out there. And, and certainly the free market model has proved to be much more successful, although with problems, much more successful than yep. these other models. And I, I certainly agree with you. Well, I want to move on. Let's uh, let's talk about salmon. You're involved with salmon conservation work and salmon farming. But first, uh, Russ, can you just share with us your favorite fishing adventure and maybe your second best fishing spot? As I know you probably <laughs> oh. won't give up your number one spot. <laughs> oh well, I could talk for I could talk for hours about fishing. I love fishing. Um, I particularly like salmon fishing and halibut fishing. These are these are uh, these are the things that I do mostly. I, I'm I'm not a lake fisherman particularly because I happen to live in the ocean. And there's literally this I could probably see a salmon jump if I looked hard enough. There's a couple of boats out right in front of me right now fishing for salmon right in front of my my little house here. And uh, I I fish every year uh, up on a little group of islands up in uh, northern BC off the coast, real close to Alaska, called Haida Gwaii. I go up there every every year for three or four days, and I, I catch a, a freezer full of salmon and halibut, and I enjoy them all all winter. And so I, I don't really have a particularly. I mean, I have many, many, many fishing stories, like all fishermen do. There's nothing that jumps out. I mean, the, the abundance in the ocean, if you get into it, is it's just marvelous. The species and the the beauty of these these animals. But uh, really, I, I am engaged in, in in salmon, particularly salmon conservation. There's a group here called the Pacific Salmon Foundation that I'm on the board of and a, and a funder of. Its existence is all about trying to protect wild salmon. And, and they're really in trouble today. They're in trouble for all kinds of reasons. The returns are lower and lower. As you know, salmon spawn every year. They, they're every, every four years, they come back to the original creek they, they were born in. It's a marvelous thing. They're miracle fish. There's different species, but they're all wonderful. They all taste great. And uh, they're in real trouble. And uh, our, our returns this year were the lowest uh, on record. We've been keeping records for over 100 years now. They were the lowest on record. There's, there's real problems. And they range from, you know, the habitat they're in when they go up the creeks. Some of the creeks are degraded from logging or from forest fires or from industry or from sewage from, from villages and towns. There are problems in the deep ocean where they're their feedstock are being fished. There are problems where they, between you know the rivers that they spawn in and the oceans that they eventually end in, as they migrate through these 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 areas where again their 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 food is affected. Herring, for example, is is fished for its roe, and if the roe the feeder fish disappear, or the feeder fish go, then you can't have the rest of the food chain like salmon and. The other problem locally here in, in, in BC is that we have a lot of Atlantic fish farms that are fishing Atlantic salmon. 
And these fish come from different places. They're brought in, they're, they're grown in pens in the open ocean, and they have viruses, and they get sea lice, and they have to be fed antibiotics, and they have waste that goes to the bottom of the sea, and it kills whatever's underneath them. So there's all kinds of problems that come out of these, these fish farms. The worst is they're probably, maybe almost certainly, uh, negatively affecting the wild Pacific salmon as they go past these big fish farms. They get sea lice, they get viruses, and it's very hard to quantify this because you can't see these fish when they're out in the deep ocean with disease or otherwise, or you can't measure how much slower they, they swim because they're covered in sea lice. So quantification is difficult, but the, the reality is that they have to be affected. So it's, just, it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts for these poor salmon. We have to do all we can to keep these beautiful, magnificent species alive. They're being affected by the warming of the ocean, by the more acidification of the ocean, which is reducing their prey. It's just a big problem. And it's kind of symbolic of a lot of things that are happening to other species that we really can't see. The problem with nature is it doesn't have a voice, right? It can't scream and say, I'm sick. I'm in trouble. You know, help me, save me the way humans do. Uh, right. So what I try to do is to say, okay, I've been very lucky in business and there's a lot of species that need help and need protection that are being hurt by human footprint one way or another. I'm going to put my philanthropy to those kind of things. And, and salmon are one of those. It also comes from the deep personal connection I have with fishing. I love fishing and it's, uh, my kids love fishing. You know, I, I just feel if, if the salmon are being hurt in a, in a world where I can try to do something about it, I have to do something. I've got an obligation to do something. I just have to, because it will be a terrible loss to my, my kids and their kids if we lose our salmon. I mean, it will be a, it will be a, it will be a, we'd we will lose a war if we lose our salmon and I will be heartbroken forever. It's just, and I don't want to see that happen. Absolutely. No, I, I agree a hundred percent with you. And there's a lot of challenges out there and some challenges that people don't even realize. What is your view real quick, uh, Ross, on commercial salmon farms and harvest? Can it be done correctly? Yeah, it can be. I am absolutely not against uh, f fish farming. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a pragmatist. You know, I think humans do need lots of protein from the ocean. It's better to eat fish probably than it is to eat beef, quite frankly. It's probably healthier and certainly is, is more ecologically good. So it's not no to fish farms. It's no to open net, open ocean fish farms. Those are the ones right. that are affecting wild salmon negatively. Stick fish farms on land. Make sure the water is recycled. It doesn't have contaminants like viruses and waste going into the open ocean and affecting the wild species. There are lots of people doing on-land fish farms in Norway, in Denmark. And in fact, in Norway, they've mandated they all the future fish farms have to be on land because they recognize themselves that the open net fish farms are problematic. There are large fish farms being built in Florida, parts of, of Kansas and Iowa, you know, the Midwest. So they, are, they work. We just have to get the fish farms in BC out of the water onto land. It's possible, it's achievable, and when you do that, that's to me the true sustainable fish farming. Well, Russ, I want to move on a little bit more on salmon. Now, you're in a unique position with regards to this topic because you know the geology, you know the location, and you know how prudent mining operations work, and you know the fisheries in the region. What is your position on the Pebble Project? Quite frankly, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence on that project. Um, perhaps I don't know it well enough to form strong opinion. On one hand, I believe that mine can be built without any real impact on the Bristol Bay salmon population. I'm quite sure that we have 
mines all over BC, uh, including some big ones right in the watershed of the Fraser River. Fraser River has has uh, <clears throat> the second largest uh, migrating salmon population uh, next to the Alaska fisheries. And it's doing okay. But I mean, it probably is doing okay. I, I shouldn't say it definitely is doing okay because it's actually not doing okay. But I don't think the problem with the Fraser River salmon populations is, is mining per se. There's four or five good-sized mines in the Fraser watershed, and I don't think that's creating a problem. Mines today really do operate under strict environmental controls. They, they operate in a way that they don't release uh, contaminants. You have uh, every blue moon summer in the world, you have a tailings failure. We had a couple of bad ones uh, last couple of years in Brazil, particularly. But, you know, this, this generally doesn't happen in a way that affects salmon. So I think properly built, and that mine will be built to world, you know, the world's very best standards, it shouldn't have a true impact on fish populations in the area. You know, having said that, I, I'm not a proponent of building mines anywhere, and really it's not my hill to die on. I'm not, a, I'm not an advocate for the mining industry particularly. I'm not an advocate for that mine, certainly. Uh, it's really going to be a thing that the local people of, of Alaska are going to have to settle on and all of the regulators that, that exist in, in government areas to regulate that mine. My gut feeling is it'll probably be approved eventually. It should probably be approved. But, um, you know, if it's not, that's that's the way it goes. I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not a shareholder, and but, but I have been in the past, I'll say. I'm not a shareholder and... Uh, you know, I wish the guys well. I know all the people in, in the company, and I'm not a particular proponent of that operation, not a hardcore proponent, certainly. So with salmon, up in that area, for example, or around the world, because um, salmon's not only up, up up in the Alaska region, it's in other places as well. What is the bigger challenge, Ross? Is it illegal fishing, overfishing, and misregulation of the fishing industry? <laughs> Well, I, I probably would, would have to say it's, it's everything. It's, it's just everything, uh, Andrew. It's, I, when I said the problem with fish, uh, salmon is death by a thousand cuts, I, I really mean that. I mean, it's habitat in the fish spawning areas. It's habitat all through the migration route. It's the quality of the fish that the salmon eat to live in the deep ocean. It's the fact that government has traditionally been supportive of industry and less supportive of conservation. And this is something that has bit certainly the Canadian fishing industry in a big way in the East when the cod population completely plummeted to overharvesting. But I don't think that's the case on the Pacific. Um, I don't see uh, government misregulation uh, as a serious problem. It's a partial problem probably, but not a serious problem. The government tends to have supported fish farms more than I think it should. Certainly today, it's it's uh, it's it's moving away from that hardcore support, which is good. Uh, that's been one of the problems, though, and it's and those are very easily uh, resolvable problems. The government just has to stop pushing fish farms and start pushing wild salmon. Overfishing has traditionally been a problem. I don't think it's a problem today. I think it's pretty well regulated today. The problem might be overfishing of the feeder fish, which is a problem. Again, that's an easily resolved problem, and I think probably, hopefully, that's going to be addressed uh, more in the near future. It's just a whole bunch of things that we can do to try to improve stream by stream, area by area, and ultimately, hopefully, the, uh, the whole species will start to come back instead of just on this inexorable downward, downward spiral. Well, let's talk about your foundation, the Sitka Foundation. What are you doing here, Ross? Go ahead and give us, uh, and I think I have a good idea, but go ahead and fill us in a little bit more there. Yeah, I mean, if, if as I said, I think before, really, I've been very lucky in business. I have a, a very blessed personal existence. I don't, I don't 
I don't have a terribly spendthrift uh, wife or family or personal desire. I I love making money, but yeah, I also love giving it away. It's it's a it's just a incredible bit of luck that I have the ability to 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 fund things that are near and dear to my heart. So you know, the first statement I I always make is you know anybody who's philanthropic is 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 going to go to heaven. I, mean, I guarantee it. it. It's a it's a wonderful thing, and everybody's got their own things that they focus on. But if you look at all giving in North America, all giving less than one percent goes to the environment. And that makes sense. Most people give to people. They give to schools and hospitals and churches and and uh, and things that are close to them. When you think that, you know, how much humans need the environment and, and the, the fact there's millions and millions of other species that don't have voices and, and are, are being pretty well trampled by a lot of human impact, my philanthropy is, is the environment. I want to be that, speaking for that, I want to be that 1%. And trying to do things that, that ultimately are very, very good for people too. To the extent we have a healthy environment, we have actually healthier societies. I firmly believe that. So we are a funding organization. So the Sitka Foundation is an organization that I established about 10 years or 11 years ago. And it's really a family foundation. Uh, it's funds that I've been lucky enough to accumulate in my life. And that it's all going into the foundation eventually and uh, before I die. And it's going to be used really for the whole mandate is protection of the environment, preservation of biodiversity. And we do this in in supporting groups who are working on those areas. For example, land conservation, you know, the Nature Conservancy, the Nature Trust, those kind of groups uh, that acquire land and put it away in reserves dedicated to, to nature. Another box would be, say, education, to educate people on the importance of nature. If you don't have knowledge of the importance of nature, how can you protect it? So we fund museums and we fund programs at the university doing work on this and that uh, directed at the environment. Also science. We, we fund science and uh, some of the stuff we've been doing with the Pacific Salmon Foundation, for example, has been to work on what are the viruses in salmon, what, is, what are the conditions of salmon in the, in the estuaries and so on in certain environments that have been less well studied. And then lastly, we, we also support groups that are working on public policy to increase land held for nature, increase funding on trying to stop climate change, for example. Uh, all, all sorts of things. So currently we're funding 75 or 80 different groups across Canada, in fact, some in the world. I'm uh, on the board of a New York-based wild cat conservation group called Panthera, which is a great group uh, that works on protecting you know, lions and, and, and tigers and jaguars and things like that all over the world. It's a great group. And, and I, my specific focus in that group is, is a jaguar program in the Americas. The Americas is where I've made a lot of my personal wealth it's a way of kind of giving back to those regions as well. So it's rather it's rather broadly focused, but uh, within a very tight mandate. And uh, and I think when when you have a focus, you can be maybe even more productive than having a kind of a shotgun approach to just giving to a whole bunch of different groups in different areas. But the fact is, I, I salute anybody who is philanthropic. I think it's uh, it's great for society, and it's quite frankly great for great for the person too. Just makes you feel good. Well, I think the environment certainly, Ross, is close to all of us. Even if you live in the city, there's just nothing, there's no getting around it. I mean, everything comes from the environment uh, at the end, whether it's mining or growing things. So I, I completely agree. And uh, with the foundation, Ross, is there any way that people can get involved with the foundation as far as capital and, and or time donations? Uh, and also, is there a website they can see? Well, the website is www.sitka, S-I-T-K-A. SitkaFoundation.org. It's a family foundation. It's not closed to funding from third parties, but we 
we haven't actually taken any, we end up taking a tiny little bit in, but we haven't really taken anything significant in. Uh, we, we could, I suppose, if, if, if somebody wanted to join us in, in this and, and, and direct some funds our way, we'd, we'd allocate those as per the, the rules that we have to. But um, I don't ever want to tell someone else what to do with his money and or her money. And uh, if, if they want to support us, I mean, there's so many ways to support what we're doing just simply by directing funding to the groups that we support. And that's all listed on our website, all the different groups we support, how much we give them per year, what they do with it, and, and so on. Through us or directly into those groups, it, it, I'm quite frankly agnostic. Well, I appreciate you sharing that info, and that gives people uh, enough of information to to proceed and seek this stuff out. And I'm interested in checking out the cat protection stuff that you're doing there, as I'm sure there's probably a few jaguars roaming around in the hills behind me here. So <laughs> certainly, certainly good stuff. Well, I want to move over to energy and discuss your position on the major sources we have available to us. But first, what is your view of the popular term green energy and really the fact that all forms of energy consume materials? Oh, most definitely. I mean, just, <laughs> well, green energy is, is, a, is used even less today than clean energy. So clean energy is what, you know, I hear a lot. But the fact is, there's no such thing as clean energy. I mean, every single bit of energy produced in the earth by humans consumes things. It consumes land, it consumes resources, it consumes a lot of minerals. And the only form of clean, truly clean energy is less consumption, better efficiency, you know, better dishwashers, better ways of moving and living and so on. They use less electricity. If we have to have electricity and if we have to have energy consumption, let's try to make it as clean as possible. Uh, I do laugh when I see people who you know, who are extreme advocates for, say, renewable energy, who also don't want to have mines built anywhere in the world. You just can't have one with the other. Clean energy, and particularly electric transportation, consumes, you know, way more of certain metals like copper, nickel, cobalt, lithium, magnesium, aluminum. I mean, I could just keep going on the list than conventional electricity generation or transportation. And so the mining industry will always be integrally tied to all forms of energy production, be it clean or non, not clean, clean or fossil, fossil burning. I've had quite an intimate experience with renewable energy specifically, because in 2008, I kind of took a segue from the mining business. I'd built probably at that time, 12 or 13 companies. And I I was sort of tired of it and I wanted to get into something green and, and use using resources, using resource development. And I, I moved into what I thought was geothermal energy or geothermal electricity production and turned out to be complicated. So I kept sort of extending that into wind and hydro and solar power. And I built a company that, that is now, you know, pretty good size. There were two mergers that uh, happened along the way, but today the company is called Interject. It trades on the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange. It's about a a $2 billion market cap. It's about a $7 billion enterprise value because these, these businesses all use a lot of debt. And uh, it, it's quite a big company. It produces more than 3,000 uh, megawatts of hydro, wind, and solar power. We had a geothermal business, but we sold it earlier this year. So it's a lot of power. And through that experience, I've really understood the pluses and minuses of all of these forms of so-called clean energy or green energy or renewable energy. It's been quite an interesting experience for me, and I, I, I have to say I've, I've got some, some blood in my brain and bruises from the experience, but on the whole, it's been a positive experience. It's been very enjoyable building a business that really does create relatively clean energy instead of fossil fuel 
based or carbon-based, hydrocarbon-based energy. With solar and wind, because you know these well, and hydro, which we'll get to in a moment, where does solar and wind fit into energy mix going forward? Does it have a supportive role or a dominant role going forward? Very good question. That's a very good question. It's been a very interesting experience for me over the last 11 years since I started in this game of renewable energy. Watching the truly you know, unbelievable, um, I mean, I could never have believed 11 years ago when I started, that we would see such a cost reduction per kilowatt hour or per megawatt hour in solar energy and, and, and wind energy. Today, you can build solar plants almost anywhere. And you can certainly build wind plants almost anywhere that are cheaper than building a coal plant, a gas plant, an oil plant, or, or certainly a nuclear plant. I don't say anywhere because there are some places that just don't have a lot of sun or a lot of wind, and, and then you're kind of stuck because you do need those two things. But, but what you do then is you generate electricity somewhere else where there is wind or, or, or sun, and you transmit it to places that you need it. This is not universally applicable, but it's almost universally applicable. So coming to your question... I'm not sure 100% if we're going to have continuing technology innovations that will just keep dropping the cost of solar and wind more and more and more to the point that you can really build it anywhere for any amount of electricity. I kind of doubt that. Uh, the next is sort of the, the holy grail right now is battery technology and how do you take wind that's, that's, being, that's blowing and generated electricity when you actually don't need the electricity and how can you store that? Uh, can you store that in... There's many ways to store electricity. Uh, one of them is batteries, of course. And a lot of people are building big batteries that are using a lot of different metals that uh, hopefully one day, well, you know, you're just going to see a, a revolution in this. Maybe even Tesla has the answer right now. Tesla's building huge battery plants all over the world. Maybe that's the right solution. Maybe there's another one, another breakthrough that's going to happen next week. But there's a huge amount of innovation going on in that business. Of course, the historic problem with wind and solar is that it's not always sunny, especially at night, and it's not always windy when it's calm. So you can't generate electricity in those times. But if you can store it, then it is truly something you can potentially use all the time. Um, there's a lot of solar in the world. It's, uh, it's in places like deserts. What's happening in a lot of the deserts of, of the world are, and right now it's, it's happening in real time, is that they're being covered with solar panels. Um, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, there are huge, I mean, I mean huge. You, the average person can't conceive of what huge areas are required to build solar plants of, say, a thousand megawatts or more. It, it's, it's staggering what, what, what size these things. I'm going to down, down in a couple of weeks down to Texas where we're building a 300 megawatt solar plant in western Texas. And again, the, the area, it's, it's something like 36 square miles that these panels are covering. There's tens of thousands of panels and, uh, you know, 300 megawatts is going to be the result. Well, multiple, some, some solar plants that are on the books in, uh, in, in the Sahara Desert and the, and the Arabian Desert are, you know, 3,000 megawatts, 5,000 megawatts. When you get to that scale, and if you have a transmission facility and potentially a storage facility, you can transmit that electricity to Europe and to places that need the power that won't need to build coal plants or gas plants or, or, or more, uh, more polluting kind of plants. And all of a sudden, you've got a kind of a global solution. So that's to your point that maybe it will be a global solution. Maybe we will be able to adopt this. But again, if you, if you look at you know, growth, the growth problem is we're going to run out of land. You're going to run out of areas to, to put solar plants. And they're not all without problems. Solar plants occupy huge areas. Wind, 
wind farms have their own problems. Plus, they're kind of ugly. Long term, the only sustainable solution is to cap the growth of energy demand. And you've got to do that by capping the pop by having population moderate, per capita consumption moderate, and that will necessarily result in less demand for electricity. That's the long-term solution. We cannot keep thinking more and more and more. We've got to think of using what we already produce better. That's the long-term solution. Ross, and I want to follow up before we get to uh, the hydro. One more question for you on the wind and solar. Do you have any concerns? You mentioned the space usage. Obviously, that's a problem. But do you have any concerns with this, the life cycle of these products and components, the maintenance, uh, all the waste that, that will be coming out of these uh, products, whether it's batteries, panels, turbines? What do you see there as, as a waste problem? Well, sure. No, waste is a big problem. It's a big problem everywhere. And, and the answer to that is recycling. It's repurposing, making a circular economy. So you don't need to have new you know, copper plants to uh, copper mines to buy copper simply to replace old systems. You actually re recycle the copper that's in an existing solar field and, and you use it again. Or you recycle the lithium in a lithium battery or re you recycle the, believe it or not, the, right now, and it's near and dear to my heart because as, as uh, chair of Pan American Silver, uh, we are now the second largest primary silver producer in the world. And silver, the largest single demand for silver today is solar panels. They're, they're used in, because silver is the most conductive of all metals, so it's a great thing to use in solar panels to conduct electricity. And, and yet, long term, we've got to learn how to recycle that silver in those solar panels, and, and it, will be, it will be done. So I'm, I'm confident that, this, that there won't be the huge waste problem that could be there if we didn't think that you know, recycling and reusing and repurposing that I, I'm pretty sure will come. And it'll come because it's cheaper. It's, it'll come because it's more economic. It's not going to come because it's good for the environment. It's going to come because it's cheaper. So you've built out hydro projects as well, and I've participated myself in decommissioning of hydropower in the northwestern U.S. as a result of environmental pressures and people not even wanting things like fish ladders and fish passages through these hydro facilities. How do you see hydropower going forward, Ross? Well, hydro is pretty well done as an energy source for the future. All the big rivers that you know can can sort of logically and some illogically be developed for hydro have pretty well been dammed or tapped. Uh, there's a lot of smaller creeks that can be used, or smaller rivers in places that are remote, like in British Columbia. Maybe some in the in the northwest U.S. Maybe even other places in the U.S. and Canada that can be that can have small what we call run of river hydro installations put on that really are very minimally impactful from an environmental standpoint. But the days of the big dams are over in North America. The days of the big dam are over in almost all of the world. There's still one or two being built, but they're pretty well done. Uh, they're extraordinarily impactful in every way, environmentally, socially, from just the, the hydrology of a river, they just have incredible impact. And I just don't see that as significant going forward. I think the real future in terms of energy demand growth will be coming from, uh, or at least electricity demand growth will be coming from wind and solar power and very little from hydro and even less from geothermal. There's only those four that are truly green or truly clean forms of energy that don't produce carbon yet are renewable. You know, the fifth one is, of course, nuclear, which is clean, but it's not renewable. 
Yes, and, and certainly uh, a lot of run-of-the-river uh, hydro facilities in, in Panama, for example, there. And you're absolutely right. There isn't much growth going forward on, on hydroelectric. Well, Ross, let's skip over coal and natural gas, unless you have a comment on them. Um, I We obviously know that, that, that coal is, is just absolutely downright nasty when it comes to power generation. But I'd like to finish up with nuclear power. Is nuclear important to you, and how do you see this form of energy participating in the future? Well, nuclear is interesting. I've never been a foe of nuclear power uh, per se. Uh, it does have, you know, the real, the real ugly part of nuclear. We all know this too. The, the two ugly parts of nuclear is that, you know, some nuclear electricity plants can generate waste products that can be used to build bombs, and that's kind of ugly and nasty. I don't think it's terribly uh, meaningful anymore because you can build bombs with other things, not just results of of power plants. So. I kind of don't worry about that too much. There's other ways to build bombs that are much more frightening. But the, the more significant is that, that nuclear plants produce radioactive waste products that are going to persist for many, many generations and thousands of generations and have to be stored somewhere on the earth. And even that, I'm not too fussed about. I think uh, we know how to store things pretty carefully. Uh, there's places on the earth that have been stable for you know eons. And I think we can we can store things long-term fairly well that, future generations don't have to worry too much about. So I'm not too fussed about that. And actually, nuclear power is clean energy. It doesn't produce any fossil fuel uh, contamination, doesn't produce uh, CO2. And it's a form of electricity generation that, you know, I'm not a foe of. But the problem is today, it's not economic. It's just simply not economic. It, it requires relatively high electricity prices because these plants cost a huge amount. They need to be built really, really well to avoid uh, leaks and to avoid problems. The decommissioning of these plants is extraordinarily expensive. Uh, looking after the waste products is really expensive long term. So they require electricity prices quite that are quite high. And today, with where wind and solar prices have been going, you know, you just can't, and, and even gas. I mean, to put up a gas plant, you can, a, you can put up probably five gas plants for the cost of a single nuclear plant. So I, I think just on economic, uh, nuclear has a very challenged future with where the, the cost of these other forms of electricity generation are going. Now, if you have a, a, a price on carbon, like a, like a carbon tax, uh, you're going to find that, that gas plants, which today are far more economic than most coal plants, a, a carbon tax will price virtually all coal out of existence. It'll simply be too expensive to run coal plants, not to mention all the other problems, coal mining and coal transportation, coal coal use that you've, you've already referred to. So let's just say coal is going to be gone in that world. But gas will probably also be gone if you put up a healthy carbon tax that really truly is the cost of carbon pollution from gas turbines, gas electrical generation. Uh, so gas will be also probably gone. And then and then that leaves wind and the renewables, wind and solar, and, and those the cost of those are go is going to keep going down, I suspect, uh, paired with batteries you're still going to be able to generate electricity significantly cheaper than you can generate electricity from nuclear plants. Now, there may be specific locations, uh, small remote communities, you can put a small nuke in that will be uh, the best energy solution for those communities. Uh, but I think those are fairly rare. And so generally speaking, I just don't see a big future for nuclear simply because I don't see it's economic against competing forms of generation. Now, Ross, I want to follow up one more on nuclear. Um, just for the sake of time here, I, I won't make uh, too many more comments on it. 
recently the U.S. military has put out solicitations for small modular reactors uh, in military operations uh, for folks to come up with designs that meet their specifications. Given the near 60-year history of nuclear-powered military applications like submarines, battleships, and aircraft carriers, do you see converting these proven reactor systems, which have been operating for that period, over to commercial use? Do you see that as something that makes sense given that you have a small modular reactor application that has already been used in military applications, converting it for civilian use, which would also allow these to be manufactured in a warehouse facility? Oh, 100%, uh, Andrew. I, I don't see anything wrong with that personally. But, you know, the big problem is that humans are not rational people. A lot of humans don't believe in science. They don't believe in facts. They believe in, in, in fantasies. And, uh, and they're afraid of uh, monsters. And they all think, well, nuclear, as soon as they're nuclear, they think nuclear bomb and, and radioactivity and, you know, the health of their water and the, the condition of their children's, you know, walk to school. It's just all kinds of irrational stuff. And that's the problem with nuclear is it's, it's got this negative stigma. And that, I think, is going to be the big problem with, with embracing that nuclear technology that you mentioned. Logically, it should exist. Rationally, people just don't want to know about it. And I think that'll be a real problem in, in actually bringing any of that technology to land-based, non-military, particularly non-military uh, applications. Yep, I think you nailed it as far as the, the certainly the challenge that exists for them. I want to move on. About your recipe for success, looking back over your experiences, Ross, and the point at which you had financial freedom. Is your experience similar to that of a junior explorer co, where it was a struggle to prove yourself, capital was always a problem, then hard work started to pay off, but there was still a drive to accomplish more, and then you catch a tailwind that puts you in a suitable position and platform <laughs> to accelerate from. At what point did Ross Beattie hit the ideal mark, and what key ingredients allowed you to obtain that market cap? Well, you, <laughs> you actually answered the, your own question, and I and, and I'm, I don't have to go on a five-minute answer uh, because you, you answered it yourself. I mean, that's exactly what happened to me, you know, that whole, you know, that struggle and then the liftoff, and then it was easy after that. And it was easy just one after the other after the other. But there were certain things that, that embraced a lot of that. And one was just being lucky in discovery. We, we made a lot of discoveries, and that was, that was a lot of fun because that creates wealth by itself, and you just have to manage that. And, and we got, you know, we had many, many great discoveries in, our, in, in some of our companies. Uh, and you can't always count on that. A lot of geologists I know live and die without having made a single dis big discovery. And they're every bit as good a ge as geologists as I am. So that was just kind of getting lucky. But, you know, I, I will say that I, I would say my, my first company, Equinox Resources, uh, they started in 85 and I eventually sold in 94. Um, that was a, a real school of hard knocks, uh, a, learning, a learning experience the whole way through for me. And I made a lot of terrible mistakes, and luckily I had some, some wins that ultimately, ultimately resulted in a, in a takeout that was a, a real happy ending for all of our shareholders. And, and, I'll, and I'll give thanks to specifically to American shareholders. I had a lot of friends in the U.S. who were shareholders of my first company, newsletter writers, their clients who really supported me and I'll never, you know, I'll never fail to acknowledge their importance. When I left that first company, I, I started my silver company the next day, Pan American Silver, just from an idea. You know, we, we had a shell company, we had no assets, no cash, nothing. And, and yet we had a big vision that we were gonna build the world's biggest silver mining company. It sounded kind of ridiculous and audacious, but you know what? I had a lot of these good, solid retail US investors who followed me in that and they, 
they, they bid up the shares of Pan American really from the get-go, believing in my big picture idea. They all were silver investors and they, they understood the importance of silver in, in, in both industrial applications and more than that, as money. And they wanted to have a company that they really could say was a, you know, a real silver company. It wasn't distracted by a bunch of other metals. So they backed me. And it was, without that backing, I could never have really raised the money that allowed us to have success in the company in due course. And, and so I give them a lot of, a lot of thanks. And uh, really, they were people who you know, were, were visionaries like me in, in, in trying to find a, a great way to play the silver price through building a silver mining company that was a real company and offered real leverage to, to silver. I, I mean, it was probably in that era, you know, mid mid '90s, really, that things things uh, really mushroomed and developed. And after that, it was it was fairly easy. Well, very well. Now, I appreciate that, and I think it's something that the audience is always interested in is is you know how you built yourself market cap and and how you went through that experience and how that rounded you out. Ross, I want to move on. Uh, you've worked a lot of long hours through your career in order to become successful and be in a position to contribute back to things that you see as key and important. How have you been able to balance your personal life and professional life to keep things stable? I've always said when I get asked that kind of question, I, I, I try to be a juggler. I've, I've always tried to juggle and I, I have three balls in the air at all the times. So I have one is, is my, my business, my work, and one is my family. And actually, one is me. You know, I'm a kind of a selfish, very selfish person. I, I love to do things myself. I have my fishing trips. I go skiing a lot uh, with a bunch of friends, and in the winter, and uh, you know, I I do a bunch of me things. And it's not very. Uh, it is selfish in that I have to take time away from work or the family to do that. But it's important to me. And if, but if I can do it, and I can keep the me side healthy, and the family side healthy, and the work side healthy, then the whole enterprise of uh, of my life, I think, is healthy. If one of those balls drops, then I've got a lot of problems and it's a real difficulty. So trying to keep a busy, active life where there's multiple directions. I'm not a workaholic. I, I love having private time as well. Lots of holiday time, lots of family time. You just have to try to combine it all in, into a whole that, that works. And everybody has different needs and different desires. But uh, from my personal standpoint, speaking very personally, um, that's what's worked for me. And I I wouldn't do it differently where I just start again. I would do it just the same way. And I, I feel very blessed to be able to say that. Well stated. Well, Ross, is there any future personal or business plans for yourself going forward that you want to tell us about? Because it appears you still have some notable runway left to go. <laughs> well, as long as you keep your health, you know, there's no reason you can't keep doing all kinds of fun things. But I would say I still have, uh, you know, I still have a desire to do all of this things that have worked in the past and I have it in the foreseeable future and I just hope it doesn't change through a health problem uh, or a, a problem in the family or, you know, a business problem that's, that's uh, irreconcilable. Don't forget, you know, all of your listeners and myself and, and all of our society, quite frankly, we've gone now for 70 years, more than 70 years without a world war. We have had no significant depression the way my parents had to live through in the, in the 30s. You know, we've lived a pretty blessed life and a lot of our markets, uh, the stock market, the bond market, commodity markets, they're, they're all behaving like, you know, there's never going to be a crisis forever or ever. This could turn around tomorrow. It could turn around next year or in 10 years or it may not turn around for 50 years, but it probably will. There probably will be some kind of a crisis that will turn things on their end. And uh, I've been lucky that I haven't lived through that. And all, everybody that I think is listening to this is in, is in the same boat. Um, and long may it last. 
but you know, I don't think anybody can predict the future and say for sure it will. Certainly, the history of the last uh, three or four thousand years is that it it doesn't last, barring any kind of big upheaval from one of those kind of consequences or a family problem or a personal problem. I would say just uh, the the future is going to be kind of like the past for me. Well, Russ, let's leave it there for now. Uh, thanks for spending the time with us, and we look forward to having you back for part two of our discussion. Okay, very good, Andrew. Thank you very much.